John chapter 3, if you will. John chapter 3. Today I want to go through a, uh, just a, a little Bible study about believing. Um, so often, of course, we um, talk to people, and whether it's people that don't go to spirit-filled churches or even sometimes people that are spirit-filled and go to spirit-filled churches, and uh, we're often sort of uh, um, uh, challenged by um, the idea in the scripture that believing saves a person on its own. And I thought I might just go through a few verses tonight to talk about that. I recently had a few um, uh, inquiries over the net from the, um, uh, based on the church's website thing uh, of people of that sort of persuasion. And they just couldn't believe that we would suggest that believing on its own didn't save you somehow. And we, we point out, yes, you've certainly got to believe, but as we go through the scriptures tonight, what I want to try and draw out is that believing is part of it, but it's not all of it. And it's an important part of it, no question about that. But uh, let's just uh, have a little look at one or two verses tonight. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, for God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And of course, this is a wonderful, wonderful verse. It uh, encapsulates the whole principle of, of God's relationship with us. God doesn't sit there in heaven hating us or despising us or looking down his nose at us. God loves us. God so loved the world. Uh, in, a little later on in John 17, Jesus says, For the Father himself loveth you. And uh, it's just such a great treasure, isn't it? Uh, I mean, it's easy to come here to church and think, yes, that's right, God loves me. But it's a bit different tomorrow morning when you wake up or maybe the day after that or maybe next Thursday or something or other. Something goes wrong in your life or maybe some drama or another and you start to wonder and doubt in yourself, is God still with me? Does he still love me? And the answer is yes, he loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son to die for your sins. And that is actually one of the greatest treasures in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And uh, that, that although this contains so many seeds of great news about God's relationship with us, the tragedy is there's an awful lot of people who will hang on to that verse on its own and hang their salvation on that. And if you go to most church websites or talk to your friends who are churchgoers and so on, and as I say, even if they're spirit-filled and they speak in tongues, and you say, well, what saves you? Uh, usually it'll come back to, well, I believe in Jesus. That's kind of the, the idea. Now, that's wonderful that they believe in Jesus, and I don't want to in any way dissuade them from believing in Jesus. But I do want to point out to you that that's not actually yet saved you in this passage. The word to believe in the Greek language, which is a bit different to the English, unfortunately, but in the Greek language, it's pistuo. It means to believe in, to rely on, to place confidence in, to commit to, to trust in, to adhere to. And so it encompasses a lot of things, not just sort of mentally acknowledging. Uh, and already straight away, I'm sure that you'll recognize in that that there's a lot more required than just uh, just making a mental acknowledgement. Uh, and I'll give you another example of this. Verse 36, because there are half a dozen of these verses here that talk about this. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, 
but the wrath of God abideth on him. We see here, verse, verse 16 was talking about how the expression of God's love is that he sent his son to die for us. Verse 36 now says, well, he loves you, but if you don't believe in him, the wrath of God abides on you. A lot of people have this idea, they have a belief in a God that is so uh, generous in his approach that people can just do whatever they want and it won't matter. And that's not what the Bible's teaching. Uh, the wrath of God abideth on him. Uh, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. If we just use a couple of those words we read from the uh, concordance a moment ago, someone who relies on him, places confidence in him, is committed to him, trusts in him, and adheres to him, has eternal life. And all the people said. Amen. It's a little bit different to just acknowledging him. Uh, James chapter 2, if you will, for a moment. This usually comes as a bit of a shock to people when they come from church circles. Uh, we're 2,000 years down the track from Jesus Christ being on planet Earth. In fact, there's all sorts of 2,000-year anniversaries coming up soon. Uh, 1997 was the anniversary of 2,000th anniversary of Jesus' birth. Uh, we've got, of course, the 2,000th anniversary of Jesus' baptism coming up around 26 AD or so. And of course, the 2000th anniversary of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection coming up undoubtedly in 2030 AD. Uh, all sorts of things. And the Bible talks about how uh, there'll be two days and in the third day I'll raise you up. So we're all hoping that as all these things sort of start to happen around about us, we might be getting somewhere close to the Lord coming back. And all the people said. As we look around the world today, I, I don't know if you saw this week, the um, President Trump of America, and I don't want to in any way, you know, take political sides. I'm not interested in that sort of thing. But um, uh, by unilaterally withdrawing from northern Syria, there uh, opened up the way for the Turks to invade, and of course the Kurds, uh, who are another separate to ethnic group, to be uh, slaughtered uh, in the wake of the advancing army. The Turks had a huge army, by the way. I think it's the biggest army in NATO, and uh, that, of course. Uh, Immediately, the Kurds, I don't know if you noticed this, but the Kurds immediately, recognising that they're about to be annihilated, genocide was on the cards, the Russians had one of their senior cabinet members down in Syria this week, and so he nicked up to visit the Kurds and said, I'll write a deal with you. And so they've got a deal now worked out so that the Russians and the Syrians are going to look after the Kurds. And the Russians are just smiling all the way to the bank because for them it's just an absolute golden opportunity to reinforce their position in the Middle East. Uh, of course, uh, without going through detail, as they've done again recently in, in, the, um, in uh, Ukraine, uh, where, of course, President Trump, with all that shenanigans with uh, uh, the Biden uh, son, uh, ended up causing trouble for the president over there in Ukraine, all weakening the powers that be, and uh, the Russian position then gets stronger and stronger. Does that make sense to anybody? Yeah. It's just, just happening in front of your eyes. It's happening in front of your eyes. I often say to people, if you did a bit of study in history, if you go back, and I'm sure we all did, didn't we? We all did a bit of study of World War One, World War Two, big wars. Before those wars, you could sort of, uh, as you go back in history, you can sort of see, oh, let's start from this point here, and you can see the steps of how the war began. All sorts, of, there's about, you know, in World War I, there were the five great powers, of course, and there was the antagonism and hostility there. There was the Austro-Hungarian Empire and so forth. 
and uh, you have the steps that took place till eventually the assassination of the Austrian um, Chancellor, I think it was, uh, just precipitated World War One. The whole thing just crashed and no one could reverse it. World War II, of course, you have the hostility, the antagonism, whether it was Germany trying to retrieve its position after the armistice of World War I uh, and the, the Versailles Treaty and so forth, and the, the various steps that took place. And, of course, on the other side of the globe, Japan uh, cornered yet further and further and further into a corner, trade wars. I mean, you talk about trade wars, the, the, the last great uh, step of almost any war is an embargo. Uh, and that's what you had, well, the trade war with Japan, of course, before World War II, until eventually both parties break out and you've got World War II and you look up and say, oh, well, that was obvious that was going to happen. That was obvious. It's all happening right now around the world, particularly in the Middle East, exactly as uh, you would imagine. You couldn't have written it uh, better than what the Bible gives a picture for. Anyway, but be that as it may. So James here, we're reading chapter 2 just for a moment, verse 17. Uh, Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. And when we talk about believing, and we must get back to our theme here tonight, believing, um, the word uh, faith here is uh, pistis, and it's from the word um, pistuo, meaning to believe. One's a verb, one's a noun. And uh, so believing or faith is the same thing. So faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. You know, if you, 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 you can have faith, but, but what the, the apostle is telling us here is you've got to do something with it. You've got to actually have something that accompanies that faith. No point saying, I believe a bus is coming. If you're standing in the middle of Wellington Road, you've got to actually do something with that faith and step off the road. You've got to take action. Same here. Uh, faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. Uh, yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I'll show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. And, uh, you know, how often have we sat perhaps with someone and tried to point these verses out, you know, maybe sitting with a Baptist friend or maybe even a Pentecostal friend sometimes and just sort of saying, but doesn't the Bible say even the devils believe and they're terrified as a consequence of that? Faith without works is dead being alone. It's dead. It's, it just doesn't produce anything. It's not going anywhere. If something is dead, it clearly means that it is of no further effect no further force. It can't achieve anything. It's dead. A little further down in verse, uh, where are we going? Down to verse 20. I'm just keeping this short for you. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? And uh, James repeats this about four times here. And uh, I guess what I want to point out this time, though, in verse 20, wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? James is getting to the point now of, of frustration. And he's now calling Christians, O vain man, you silly nong, you peanut. Don't you realize that faith and believing on its own won't actually save you? And uh, I think probably, as I say, many of our friends in church circles and so forth might be a little bit insulted if we sort of said, you peanut. Don't you know that faith on its own doesn't actually save you? It doesn't do it on its own? But that's exactly what James is saying. Don't be such a nong. Uh, over in John chapter 3, and I will just take you back to where we were just a moment ago. When people quote John 3.16 to me, 
I like to just take them back a couple of verses, same chapter, uh, verse 3, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I uh, said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And you'll see in your margin there the word again means from above. Unless a man is born from above, he can't see the kingdom of God. What even a man that believes really, really hard, yes, even a man that believes really, really hard, he's not going to see the kingdom of God. He's got to do something. He's got to be born again. Uh, I'm sure you've seen some of these TV shows where um, the, um, the, the the childbirth type shows and what have you, you know, I've got the names of any of them. But um, it's hard work. They call it labour, don't they? They call it labour because it's hard work. I mean, I've had four kids. It's hard work. <laughs> Jolly hard work. And, of course, talk about doing something. Uh, in the case of being born again, born from above, you've got to do something. You know, you might be working really hard at this for an hour or two hours out in the prayer room out the back there, praying and praying and praying and praying. In verse 5, he goes on, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Believing doesn't do that for you. You've got to actually take some action. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said to thee, you must be born again. So only a dozen verses before John 3.16, we've got this amazing statement about what you've actually got to do. You've got to be born of the spirit. And without the spirit, as Jesus points out here, whatever's born of the flesh is flesh. You can be the most faithful, believing person. You can be the Pope himself Actually, I don't know that he is that believing, frankly, but anyway, you can be the Pope himself but and believe all you want, but unless you're born again, you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. It's that simple. Uh, the wind bloweth where it listeth. In fact, this was in the gifts of the Spirit tonight. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof. But canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Now, Jesus doesn't say things casually without a meaning attached to them. Everything he says has got a pretty good, solid, crunchy meaning to it. And this is true also of this passage here. Uh, the wind there, that's probably a disappointing sort of a translation, that one there. The word is, is nema or pneuma. In the Greek, it means the spirit. The spirit blows where it wants to, and you hear the sound, the sound in the Greek there is phone, okay? You hear the voice, it means the voice. You hear the voice of it. But you cannot tell where it comes from and where it's going to. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Uh, why would you attach that to being born of water and the Spirit unless it has the meaning that you're going to speak in tongues when you get the Holy Spirit? And when you speak in tongues, he's sort of reminding everybody here, uh, the Spirit comes, you hear the voice of the Spirit, they spoke in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So Acts chapter 2, verse 4. And so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. You know, quite often people have the idea that, oh yes, getting the Holy Spirit, there's different manifestations. Some people speak in tongues, as some people can just play the piano well. I've heard that. As some people are teachers, 
You know, my, you know, my wife's a primary school teacher. I've heard that as well. Uh, and you think, oh my goodness gracious me. According to the Bible, everyone that receives the Spirit, you'll hear the voice of the Spirit. They're going to speak in tongues. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Uh, I mean, argue that with Jesus Christ when he comes back if you're not happy with it. Okay? Because they are not my words. They're Jesus' words. People often, uh, well, Acts chapter, we won't look it up, but Acts chapter 1 talks about after you receive the Spirit, he says you should receive power. Remember the passage, Acts 1 verse 8. The word power there is dunamis, and it means both power or a miracle. It also means a miracle. And uh, in the Greek there, it's actually a uh, and the implication, you know, the lack of the definite article. And what it's saying is that when you receive the Holy Spirit, yes, you receive power, that's true. But you actually get a miracle. That's why the disciples knew they had to keep praying for another seven days because they hadn't had their miracle yet. They hadn't had the voice of the Holy Spirit yet. They believed, believed heaps. They were walking with Jesus for three and a half years, believing what he was telling them, but without the Holy Spirit. Over to the book of John chapter 8 for a moment just to explore this. Little bit of a Bible study, I hope you don't mind. John chapter 8. And as I say, how frustrating it is. You go through some of these thoughts on a Wednesday night perhaps and then you think, oh yes, I know most of that, I know most of that. And then you meet up with someone two or three days later that's a Baptist or a Jehovah Witness or from the AOG or something or other and uh, all some, the arguments erupt and it starts off with John 3.16, you've just got to believe. You think, oh, what were all those other scriptures? Sometimes it's not a bad idea to write a few down if you're not sure. If you are sure, that's fine. John chapter 8, verse 30. And as he spoke these words, many believed on him. And then Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And uh, Jesus points out here, he says, to the, these people believed in Jesus, and Jesus pointed out, it's not a matter of just believing. You've got to actually continue in my word. You've got to follow what I say. You've got to keep going. You've got to do something. Faith without works is dead, being alone. Uh, the same chapter down in verse 51, another illustration here, verse 51. Jesus says again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Now we find out that believing will bring you everlasting life and keeping Jesus' saying will bring you everlasting life. It goes together. It's a package. It's like the recipe for a decent uh, fruit cake. You need all sorts of ingredients. Believing's one, but so is following Jesus' instructions. Verily, verily, I say to you, if a man keep my saying... He shall never see death. Uh, over to the book of Hebrews just for a moment in chapter 5. A reference again to Jesus Christ. Uh, Hebrews 5 verse 8. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. In other words, it's not just a matter of believing. Believing puts you on the path to obeying him. Uh, he became an author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. We have to do what he says. Uh, not much point, you know, somebody saying, I believe in Jesus, and then the next week they're, they're just, 
you know, living a worldly lifestyle again or whatever. I mean, you've got to uh, do what he says. Uh, eternal salvation, of course, a reminder here that it's eternal life that's at stake. It's not just a casual relationship with God. It's not just something uh, light. It, this, is the, this is at the very heart of life on planet Earth. This is what people wake up thinking every, I won't say thinking every day of their life, but it's the background of what they think every day of their life. One day I'm going to die. I wonder what happens when you die. I would like to know if there's a God. I would like to know if God would accept me. I would like to know if uh, perhaps when you die, all that happens is you just go down in the box and you stay underground two metres and that's just where you are for the rest of eternity or whether there's something different. And the Bible makes it clear there's something drastically different. There is eternal life for those that obey him. Over again, if you will, Luke chapter 6. Again, perhaps just one verse here. I'm just trying to keep this a little bit short. I don't want to be too heavy with this. Luke chapter 6 and verse uh, verse 46. And why call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? I reckon that's a really punchy line, isn't it? Why do you call me Lord, Lord? How many people go to church and they call the Lord, they call Jesus Lord, and they sing hymns about the Lord Jesus at Christmas time, and they sing hymns about Jesus Christ at Easter and so forth. And uh, the Lord's sitting there saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do the things that I say? It's disrespectful. You know, in life we expect uh, respect for all sorts of categories of people, don't we? You go to see your lawyer, you show him a fair bit of respect, don't you? He knows a whole bunch more than you would know about the law. Go see a doctor, you show them respect. You don't walk into your doctor and say, G'day, Bob, how's it going, mate? You know? They, well, you might, I don't know. Do you do that? Um, perhaps, uh, you know, you... Standing before a judge, or maybe the police have pulled you over, you know, and they're about to uh, tell you off for something or other. Uh, you know, look at the little name card on their thing, you know, Constable Harry Jones or something. G'day, Harry, how's it going, mate? <laughs> a little respect, please. Your principal in high school, perhaps the boss that you work for. How about the Lord God Himself? You show respect to those people, but the Lord God himself, or when he says something, I just take it or leave it. It doesn't worry me too much. I don't think he's too bothered. He, he's, not that, he's not that particular about things. Oh, okay, good luck with that one. The Bible says when he comes back, he comes back with a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Uh, the word of God, it says, Jesus said, uh, it's not me that judges you, but my words will judge you. And so we point to people all the time. He, if we call him Lord, we need to do what he says. The next time someone says to you, oh, yes, I believe in Jesus, I think I'm saved, blah, blah, blah. I mean, maybe it's just as smart to say, well, hang on, if you believe that he's the Lord, then just do what he says. How about all this stuff he says over here in Mark 16 about miracles and signs? What about the stuff over here in Matthew 3 about getting baptized and so forth? Do what he says. Let's go to another passage, John chapter 12. Actually, we might go, we might for time tonight. Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse, um, it's a great little story here. It's Paul in his travels and he ends up dropping into the Ephesians on the way back to Jerusalem here in Acts chapter 20. And, uh, there's quite a long conversation between him and the Ephesian elders. Uh, verse 17. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and he called the elders of the church. Uh, when they were come to him, he said to them, You know what 
from the first day I came to Asia after what manner of I've been with you in all seasons, serving the Lord with humility of mind and so forth. In other words, with the Ephesian church, we've actually got a whole bunches of, of really great little instructions and bits of information. We've got their salvation experience back in Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 6. We've got the letter to the Ephesians, you know, one chapter through to chapter six there. We've got a sec, you know, which we think happened around 55 AD or so. Then we've got a second uh, letter to the Ephesians. Who knows where the second letter to the Ephesians is? Revelation chapter two. Write this unto the seven churches, to the church which is at Ephesus, write this. You've got that about, we think the book of Revelation was written about 90 AD, perhaps 91 AD. So you've got this stuff to the Ephesians, and, and now we've also got this uh, very power-packed little uh, final words that Paul gives them face-to-face -face, uh, when he calls the elders together. Acts chapter 20, and I'm not going to go through all of it, just, just one little principle I'm after here in verse 26. Uh, wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. And uh, I guess why I like that is because Paul tells a group of people that he's very you know, warm and affectionate towards. He says, look, I've not neglected to tell you the whole thing. I haven't held something back. Uh, if, if, if the Bible says you've got to not just believe in Jesus, you've got to also be born again, I've told you that. If the Bible tells you that uh, he gives eternal salvation to those who obey him, I've explained that to you. If the Bible talks about the fruits of the Holy Spirit, uh, love, joy, peace, goodness, meekness, faith, temperance, and so on, I've explained that as well. If the Bible talks about the gifts of the Spirit, miracles, uh, healings, speaking in tongues, interpretation, prophecy, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, I've explained that as well. If the Bible talks about the life we now lead as Christians, I've explained all that as well. How to relate with husbands and wives, I've explained all of that. Children and parents, I've explained all of that. Workers and their bosses, I've explained all of that. Your relationship with the old Jewish colleagues in the old Jewish synagogue, I've explained all that. He says, I've not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. You've got 14 letters there from Paul the Apostle in which he clarifies all of these different aspects of being a Christian. You, you, you can hardly miss it. And in particular, the one I'm obviously pointing out tonight is the fact that the, uh, this same group of Ephesians uh, go back one page to chapter 19 and we see how they get saved. It came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples, he said to them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said to him, we've not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said to them, under what then were you baptized? And they said, under John's baptism. And then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. And so the Ephesian church begins with the same pattern that the Christian church began in Acts chapter 2. The outpouring of the Holy Ghost, the miracle of a wonder, uh, the power of God uh, at the uh, arrival of the Holy Ghost. As Peter the Apostle points out, uh, they shall prophesy. I'll pour out my spirit from on high, they shall prophesy. They'll bubble forth. 
Uh, over to Isaiah chapter 30, if you would. Verse 9, again, just one or two verses, just to keep it nice and short tonight. Verse 9, uh, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord, which say to the seers, see not, and to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits. Now, I've brought you in halfway through a story here, and that's probably not fair, but the, I'll, I'll summarize it for you. God is furious with Israel because they've abandoned what they should be doing. And uh, we'll go to verse 1, for example. Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, that take counsel but not of me, that cover it with a covering but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. God's furious. Now, this is this is prophecy as well in the sense that it wasn't just the Israelites' uh, 800 BC that we're talking about here. This is talking about our age as well. And the Lord is pointing out, he says, uh, how, do, how, how frustrated he is at the, the, in Christian times that they take a covering but not his spirit. Their covering is this very lacy, just believe and you're okay thing. And as he points out later, he says, this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord. They don't want to know what the Bible says. Uh, they say to the seers, see not. The seer is an old-fashioned word for prophet. Okay, uh, And to the prophets, they say, uh, uh, prophesy not unto us right things, but speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits. And one of the tragedies in Israel of old was, they didn't want to be told something that they didn't want to listen to. They wanted stuff that was smooth and easy. They wanted stuff that they could just sort of digest without any great problem, that nobody was going to be offended by. And it does come as rather a, a shock. It sort of jars people when you say to them, well, in the New Testament, it's not just believing that saves you. You've now got to repent. And you need to be baptized in water. And you need to pray for the Holy Spirit. And if you don't speak in tongues, you're not a Christian. Now that's the opposite to this. The uh, prophets of old were saying things that people just were quite comfortable with. It was uh, stuff that was just going to make them feel okay as they were. Speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits. And uh, for that reason, Jesus spoke the truth, of course, and uh, he was uh, crucified for speaking out. Uh, the truth. And he told us, he says, that they won't like you, they don't like me, they won't like you. They hated me before they hated you. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. He said, in one house there'll be two against three and three against two. The father against the son, the son against the father, the daughter against the mother, you know, the mother-in-law against the son-in-law and so on. I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. God's word is the sword and the sword divides. And you've only got to walk up to a group of people who claim they're Christians and say the three magic words. Speaking in tongues, then stand back and see what happens. It divides, it separates, it starts arguments. People get upset before you know. You haven't said anything else. All you said was speaking in tongues. Or maybe you said it as a question. Speaking in tongues. And there you'll find everything erupting. Uh, because it's unwelcome. Uh, there's different views, different opinions. And tragically, uh, the ones that, the opinion that seems to hold the day is the one that placates everybody, that makes everybody feel good. Because nobody likes the idea, fair enough, nobody likes the idea that, well, uh, my grandmother wasn't a Christian then. She didn't speak in tongues. 
And my uncle Harry, who was very, very religious, he didn't speak in tongues. Maybe he wasn't a Christian. Is that what you're saying? You can't tell me that. Now, frankly, I don't tell them that. It's between Uncle Harry and God or Grandma and God. They can sort it out themselves. They've already, nine times out of ten, they've already passed away. Uh, what does matter, though, is the person you're sitting and talking to, what they're doing, what they're saying. There's no smooth sayings. It's the truth. Uh, the truth sometimes is stranger than fiction. Uh, the truth sometimes really hurts. But the other thing I know from Scripture is the truth will set you free. So we stick to the truth. It says, thy word is truth. Over to the New Testament again. Matthew chapter 7. How are we going for time? Oh, yes, okay, just quickly. Matthew chapter 7. Oh, look. Yes. Nice to finish on something Jesus said. And we don't say these things to be hard or harsh or, or difficult to get along with. Far from it. We're actually, you know, generally very easy-going people, aren't we? But our boss is strict. That's the problem. Our boss is very strict. So we've got to go back to what he said. So we'll finish off with what Jesus said here, and it's a, it's a great reminder. It's a, on one hand, it's you know, every time I read it, the hairs on the back of my neck go up, but by the same token, I'm happy to keep doing it the Lord's way. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Uh, Enter you in at the straight gate. A straight means narrow. Uh, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And, this is the bit that always chills me, few there be that find it. Few there be that find it. And that, 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 that sort of uh, screams, um, you know, in opposition to what we find around about us in the world today. In the world today, there are allegedly one and a half billion Christians. One and a half billion, allegedly. Um, but if Jesus is right, and I think he might be right, and not the statisticians, then there's only a few people that actually find it. Few there be that find it. Enter in at the straight gate. Straight means narrow there, but it also has another meaning. It means difficult to get through. It means kind of like squeezing through sideways kind of thing. Enter you in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction, many there be that go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads to life, few there be that find it. And uh, like any gate, you think of a gate you know. Your, your gate, where do you, your gate, you don't sort of open a gate and there's a brick wall in front of you, do you? You open a gate because on the other side of the gate there's a pathway, there's a footpath or there's a perhaps a, um, a driveway. On the other side of every gate is a pathway. And he says, narrow is the gate, sorry, straight is the gate, and narrow is the way. So it's actually a tight gate to get through, but on the other side there is a footpath you're supposed to be walking on, and that also is tight. Narrow is the way. Sometimes people have the idea, oh yes, I repented, got baptized, got filled with the Holy Spirit, I can just do whatever I want. Uh, good luck with that. We heard in the gifts tonight, you know, the importance of not being half-hearted or lukewarm and so forth. All great encouragement, of course. Uh, we're encouraged to, uh, to build ourselves up, to pray in the Holy Ghost, to get to church, to get to fellowship, go out and evangelize, tell some people about the Lord. Uh, this is our calling. This is our role. Jesus, you, you said you are the light of the world. He said you don't light a light and then stick it under a table. He says you're the salt of the earth. That's a very powerful statement, isn't it? He wants us to be the uh, uh, what gives zip to life on planet Earth, and it's us 
as we go out and tell people about the Lord. Uh, narrow is the way as well as straight is the gate. It's a narrow way, it's a straight gate. We love the Lord, we're grateful that he found us. We're not, we're not smart enough to have found him, don't get me wrong. We're gratefully saved us, gratefully called us to himself and we're grateful that he's given us his word. It's such a treasure, isn't it? Let's stick to the word. 